This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book's title is The Snow Leopard and the Ibex, a novel by Douglas W. Farnell. Did I pronounce your title correctly, uh, sir? Yes, that's correct. Uh, my name is correctly pronounced. Share with my listeners a definition of an ibex. What is an ibex, and how does it fit into this story? What is an ibex? Okay. Well, I thought I would add animals uh, in a way to this uh, action-adventure story as a uh, a way of kind of grounding the actors in a sort of uh, natural, nature-oriented association uh, that each animal has its own vulnerabilities. And one of them is the ibex, which uh, is a form of a Capricorn. Would it be best described as perhaps a mountain goat, something in that uh, that family? Yes, yes, although it's alpine in nature. Wow. So it's, uh, it's habitat is of a high uh, mountain uh, ranges, and so it's, uh, so it's a bit of a mountain goat type uh, animal, and they're prevalent both in the Alps and they were the ones that actually the antagonist of the story came in contact with uh, directly is from the Central Asian mountain. So we, the, those are the ibex with the big, huge curly horns, a couple meters in length. Yes, you also are drawing from your personal background and interest in the outdoors. You are a mountain climber, have done a lot of adventure uh, expeditions and things. Is that also part of what you've included here? Yes, it is. And uh, m- uh, mountain climbing is uh, part of the story. It turns out that climbing takes place towards the end of the, of the uh, book in uh, Switzerland, uh, climbing actually a very famous mountain in, uh, in the Swiss Alps. As you began writing this, you must have had some inspiration behind the story. Was it drawing from your own personal life, or did you actually observe other things that you just felt from an imaginative standpoint you wanted to include in the story, the snow leopard and the ibex? It's actually both, but I'll say it is uh, the start out with uh, things that I have experienced in my own personal life, and the the actual trigger for the main thrust of the story is the plight of the small business person struggling to uh, succeed and struggling to stay alive during the financial crisis. So the time frame, uh, actually the time frame the book is written is in uh, the year 2008, which we all know was the the beginning of the financial crisis, you know, with the Lehman Brothers and uh, all that stuff, and uh, the repercussions on small business people, which, uh, you know, I don't know if people are aware that uh, there are more than 10 million small businesses in the U.S., and uh, Canada. Right. So uh, uh, that whole financial crisis was a huge blow to the capability of small businesses, whereas large businesses were relatively protected and actually grew, especially the large banks on Wall Street, grew in power and influence. Uh, and even they, of course, made uh, trillions of dollars of mistakes. But, uh, but all that caused a great deal of grief for small businessmen. So I wanted to write a book about that because I think most people in the, you know, most Americans don't understand the real uh, impact and real effect of the financial crisis on small businesses. Is there any aspect of this that's sort of an allegory 
for example, using the snow leopard and the ibex as characters also? Well, yes. Actually, I would say that there is. the. Um, so I want to add some drama to, you know, because you can get pretty dry talking about financial aspects and, then, you know, profits and loss and cash flow problems and all that other. And I wanted to add a, a, uh, an aspect of drama to this in some way, and that's why I wrote it, wrote it in the form of a novel, um, as opposed to a academic uh, discourse on, you know, how um, the uh, the evils of capitalism or the shortcomings of capitalism have negatively affected uh, the ability of free enterprise to survive. So I added these um, characters in it, and the, the main character, uh, the main hero of the story, who is um, Daniel Prescott, who's the owner and CEO of a small software firm here in Seattle, and the challenges that he had to go through in order to be able to get expansion uh, capital for his business. And so the, the um, I had him go through a lot of hoops where he faced a lot of dangers, uh, hijackers, terrorists, some dangers in climbing in, when he was climbing in the Alps. And so uh, those those are the kinds of things I brought into the story. Douglas, how long did it take to complete this, your first adventure novel? It took me about one year, and uh, including all the time that I did for research you know, into the background of uh, some uh, believable background uh, things, but for both the protagonist, the antagonist, and um, uh, Daniel's love interest. To introduce this to, to people, and I guess if I were in your shoes and had an exciting novel like this, I might be tempted to try to present this to a producer somewhere and get his interest. How would you introduce this book to them? Actually, uh, I did that already two years ago. Um, uh, there was uh, the Author House uh, put, uh, put on a special event where some of its authors were invited to New York City to actually produce, uh, pitch to um, producers and uh, folks who are uh, instrumental in choosing stories for uh, Hollywood productions. And so I did that actually two years ago. But, uh, you know, it's a crowded market. And uh, I had the novel was just being completed, so it hadn't even hit any stores yet. So uh, the public hadn't picked up on the end. I think Hollywood generally goes for stories that have already proven themselves in some respects out in the book marketplace first. Of all the scenes that you recreated or created in your novel and uh, drew from imagination, which of those do you think is going to stand out to the reader? I would say there's probably two of them. Uh, one would, there's uh, a very significant uh, drawn-out scene of a uh, hijacking attempt on an airliner at 35,000 feet, which the protagonist participates in and has to defend against. And the other is some um, uh, danger, dangers facing uh, him and the female uh, character in the Alps, uh, climbing in the Alps. So I'd say those two probably stand out as the most, you know, challenging and cliffhanging type adventures. Would you say that your novel would appeal mostly to guys, or is this also something that maybe the ladies might enjoy reading as well? I am hoping, especially with uh, some um, tweaks that I plan to make to the characters' uh, uh, actions in a second edition, I'm hoping that's going to appeal to women as well, as I uh, think uh, women would enjoy this kind of story, because it's, uh, it's about romance just as much as it's about uh, action and uh, and uh, companies trying to raise capital. 
What came through as an underlying message to this? Was there a uh, key element that you think stands out that people are going to say, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand where the author was going with this. Well, what I hope it is, is uh, an understanding of um, uh, some of the fundamental reasons why small businesses in the U.S. uh, have a much more difficult time and a much bigger struggle against the um, abuses that uh, kicked off the financial crisis. So my hope is that more people will understand some of the fundamentals, not all, but some of the fundamentals of why that took place. Would you also call your book a fun read, or is it pretty serious? Oh, yeah. It's fun. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. A fun, uh, well, a fun, I'm just going to say a, uh, a good read. or when you, when you use the term good read, it means it's pretty exciting and it's a fast read because of the action scenes. It's fast-paced because it's only 204 pages, so it's not a long, intense, uh, detailed book in, in that respect. Would you call your writing similar to any other authors in the marketplace, or do you have anybody that you admire that you hope people will pick up on yes. the uh, writings yes, of Daniel totally, totally. W. Farnham? And it goes along with being a fast-paced, uh, action-oriented, and my hero in that respect is Tom Clancy. Great writer. And uh, I probably used uh, a couple of his uh, techniques um, in, uh, in my writing. Is there anything else in the marketplace that deals with this subject material, or have you broken new ground, do you think? I think I've actually broken new ground. You know, uh, all of the writings that I've seen so far about the financial crisis are all academic and very financially technical, which I personally can understand because I'm a former chief financial officer and I can understand the uh, concepts and uh, and the big picture of what that means. But uh, but they're kind of dry reading for the average uh, uh American, and that's why I created my novel to present this same similar, the, the same uh, problem, but in uh, in a more adventurous, uh, action-packed light. As an author, many of my authors uh, journal; they keep track of day-to-day activities and maybe things that impress them or inspire them. Are you one of those types of authors, or did you just sit down and begin writing and just let it flow? just began writing and let it flow. I, kind of, I started with a bit of an outline of like chapter titles, what I knew that I wanted to have happen. I knew that the, the bigger picture of what I wanted to have happen, so I represented that picture by chapter titles and then just filled those in. Short-term goals were to finish this particular book and maybe a revision and an update or a, a, a segment two. What other goals do you have long-term as an author? Well, I think I am going to uh, continue uh, this, uh, and I have in mind a uh, sequel for this adventure as well. So, uh, so that'd be my next uh, next uh, couple of years. That'd be my next objective. Do you spend a lot of time every week doing the creative process? Is this something that you uh, put on your schedule, or just something that hits you at a certain moment and you begin writing? You know, I more more along the lines of uh, I'm actually I have taken a break, you know, in order to come up with uh, some more things that I'd like to add to uh, to uh, the second edition. But I do spend a, a roughly three to four hours a day writing, trying to get, get that in, as well as I'll have a little notebook that I take along, small little notebook I fit in my hip pocket uh, that I take with me to jot down bullet points of, oh yeah, I wanted to add that feature into the next chapter. Spectacular. This book is titled The Snow Leopard and the Ibex. Our author, Douglas W. Farnell. Sir, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Uh, They can, almost almost every online uh, 
purchasing uh, capability should be able to carry the book. It's available on Amazon and other online uh, book services. And um, they uh, can, that's probably the best way to get it there. They're available in hardback and uh, soft cover and the e-version as well. And I'm assuming a website may come up in the future or a fan page, and uh, they can do a search under your name, Douglas W. Farnell, F-A-R-N-E-L-L, and keep in touch not only with you about this novel and any uh, reissues uh, re or uh, updates that might come about, and also the next book in the series. Thank you, Douglas, for joining me today. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Joining me from Great Britain is author Dr. John Bancroft, who has written a book titled Tolerance of Uncertainty, and he joins me from Oxford, England today. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. This is a uh, a book of 326 pages or so. It deals with a topic that most of us have at least a curiosity about. Could you explain to my listeners uh, what is the uh, the basic genesis of your book? Well, the reason behind the title, Tolerance of Uncertainty, is that um, uh, I think we have to come to accept that there are a lot of things that we are not going to be able to understand. Um, that does make a distinction between um, what is <clears throat> unknowable and what is uncertain, which is an important one. Uh, but um, how we cope with uncertainty uh, is uh, an important issue, and uh, this is something that I sort of came came to realise uh, late in my career, uh, and uh, after I retired and um, written the third edition of my main book, I. Um, I decided to explore this more. Uh, I, re I realized that um, <clears throat> I had to accept um, uh, a lot of uncertainty or un unknowing in, in the science that I was involved in. Um, and uh, I had come to use um, what I call models of reality as a way of coping with that, models to describe the way that people behave or feel which um, I'm not going to explain thoroughly, but will be useful uh, in our attempts to, to understand you know, people's problems and so on. 
And your and your and your understanding or your 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 focus is on, or at least based on, the human sexuality model. That's where I started. Yes, yes, and um, uh, we developed a model at the King's Institute to, to sort of simplify that, and it's already been quite uh, uh, productive. But um, <clears throat> in thinking about that, um, um, I uh, started to wonder whether this this was of relevance to my life in general. Uh, the need to tolerate uncertainty and to have models of reality to help us to cope with that. So I decided to explore this um, and see how other people felt um, and what evidence there was out there. <clears throat> I first of all considered science. Um, of course, most scientists have no idea how much uncertainty they can cope with. Mm. Uh, but there are certainly some scientists who are very certain about uh, the key issues in their work, and they stand out in that respect. Um, one particular area that I looked at in the book is, is the science of, of the mind and, and consciousness, um, and uh, that was very interesting because there are a lot of scientists out there who believe that it's only a matter of time before we actually explain what um, consciousness is and how it works. Whereas there are others, and I would include myself here, who would believe that this is something beyond uh, comprehension. The uh, the <coughs> general the general the general idea then is that we, uh, although we feel like science is an absolute, there are no absolutes in science. Would that no, be correct? No. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And all those things are going to be beyond uh, comprehension. How long did it and take? Think, how long did it take you, Doctor uh, Bancroft, to to complete this work? Or is this just a, a completion of of things that you have been studying and contemplating for years? No, I I did a lot of new reading. Um, to I read a lot of books. Um, uh, I spent about three 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 to four years working on this book. Um, I was reading a lot of literature which um, I wasn't particularly familiar with. This I mean, this comes on to uh, I, I looked at. Um, in the book, I move on from science to consider morality, first of all. How certain are we about our morals? And um, <clears throat> looking back in history, I mean, there were some pretty disturbing examples of things which were considered morally acceptable, but which aren't now, of which slavery is probably one of the more vivid examples. But to me, the most important issue is um, the subjugation of women. Because this has been out there in human societies, um, certainly since the early societies, uh, about you know, more than 10,000 years ago, uh, the early societies, the hunter-gatherers, were, where you had groups of families uh, um, uh, moving around the countryside where they could find um, food and so on, uh, a pattern of human uh, society or human groups which probably went on for longer than any other type of uh, human uh, group or society. Uh, and in those um, hunter-gatherer groups, there, the evidence suggests that the men and women were pretty equal and equally important. Mm. Um, and then things changed when um, the human beings started to uh, cultivate and become uh, agriculturalists and then started to own property and to get wealthy and have money. And, um, and then... <coughs> Fairly early on in that process, women were subjugated to a uh, less uh, important position. 
And to be honest, that hasn't really gone away, although it's um, certainly a lot better in, in some parts of the world. It's still an issue. It's an example of a morality which has been relatively certain in people's minds, but which I find is definitely immoral. And, uh, and, and that's the theme that comes through the book, and I finish it with a, a, a model, uh, um, because I don't know the best way of dealing with this. Um, I'm not certain about that, but uh, I put forward a model of how society might deal with um, male-female relationships and um, hopefully improve the situation. Important idea. The uh, book, when you began to write this, you must have had a specific audience in mind. Who did you feel would, would find this not only interesting and perhaps thought-provoking, but it would benefit them? Well, that's, that's a good question, because I'm not sure I did have a, a definite audience in mind. I was I was more wanting to deal with this to, to sort myself out. Mm-hmm. And I did so in the process of writing a book. I hoped that it would be of interest. Whenever I, uh, I, was, I was struck by how often when I talk, talk to people about what I was working on, they would say, wow, that sounds very interesting. Uh, and there isn't much... On, that focuses on this out there, to be honest. There, there have been books starting to emerge. I think this is not just me that's interested in this, it's, it's growing. So um, so we'll have to see. But um, I, I, the way I've written the book, I think I would hope that it would be of interest to certainly reasonably intelligent uh, lay people, not necessarily scientists or theologians. Um, but quite a lot of the book deals with, looks at religion, um, and uh, <clears throat> I go th- I go through the literature on the main world religions and uh, uh, look at to what extent certainty and uncertainty was evident. And I was struck by um, how, during periods in the history of uh, Christianity, say, where I've got obviously most uh, evidence, um, periods when theologians would be quite clear that they felt that God was unknowable, and the unknowability of God that this didn't prevent them from believing and uh, feeling uh, spiritual about that. Obviously, that's changed and um, comes has come and gone during the history. Um, and um, I, I move on to uh, I, I I look at the, the impact that the, the main religions have had on the issues of subjugation of women, and I have to say, I'm afraid that uh, I don't think any of the religions, certainly not the main monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, have done anything to improve this, and in some respects have made it worse. Um, I I go on to consider certainty and uncertainty in the individual person, not not the religion, you know, the ordinary person, uh, how much certainty and uncertainty play in, in their lives and in their, in their religious experiences. This was something that was only uh, started to receive attention um, early in the 20th century. Prior to that, people working, about, working on or writing about religion will be not focusing on the individual, but the religious creed. In the 20th century, the individual came to the surface. This was part of a process of uh, what's been called individualism. Um, so there is now evidence, not a huge amount, but there is now evidence about how individual people uh, vary in their experience.
experience of uh, uh, religious feelings and belief and spirituality. And uh, so I look <clears throat> through the evidence uh, of that in the book and summarize it. And, um, well, in looking in looking at your style of writing and the content, uh, I must say that you either have access to a very large library or you have a very large, large library of your own. Everything is documented, it's outlined, it's, uh, it's uh, resourced and, and uh, referenced. Did you uh, have this in your own personal uh, accumulation of books, or did you have to go elsewhere to find the, the, uh, the material that you have included here? Well, I've bought quite a few books through Amazon, <laughs> um, and I've accessed a lot of uh, published material on the Internet, which, of course, is uh, hugely important. Uh, but, no, I've had, I had to do a lot of reading. And, and you, you obviously have a good retentive uh, ability as well, because uh, you have dealt with a complex subject and have given... You know, you cited instances, cited writers, cited uh, researchers. As you uh, completed this, uh, how did you how did you feel you could introduce this to someone? Uh, this is again a book that I don't think the average reader would would gravitate toward, but someone who's maybe a researcher or someone who's a college student or someone in that type of uh, environment would find this of interest. Would you introduce it to them that way, or how would you, from your perspective, introduce the book? I think I, I have to be sort of humble about this. Uh, all I can do is to, to say why I personally needed to work on this book and uh, express hope that other people will find it both interesting and helpful uh, in getting them to think about themselves and, and about their religious beliefs and so on. But I have no guarantee that this is going to have much impact. And um, that's not going to be, you know, uh, I will accept that. Uh, important thing is that I've done it for myself, mm. and it's out there. Uh, and um, I'm reasonably pleased that it is. What, what have you discovered about yourself, as you have uh, mentioned, in, uh, in researching and, and uh, crafting this, this read? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good and important question. I, I think I have, uh, I've come to look quite, uh, closely uh, at how I feel spiritually, and there's no question in my in, in my mind that uh, that I'm not spiritual in any way. Spirituality is important for me, uh, but um, I think it's something that that is brought on by my uh, interacting with nature in particular, um, and uh, I don't feel the sense of oneness with. Uh, something out there that a lot of people do, which is fine. Uh, I, I respect that. Um, and I don't uh, find it helps me to uh, believe in a God in dealing with this, as I think a lot of people do find helpful. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I've become more clear about myself late in my life. Um, I'm looking for what category I, I fitted into. I'm certainly not a an atheist, um, probably the best term uh, that's available is agnostic, mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm not entirely happy with that term, but I don't have any other one. Um, I hope that partly answers your question. Sure. The, the book title, uh, Tolerance of Uncertainty, has been written by 
John Bancroft. Dr. John Bancroft has joined me from the United Kingdom. Sir, where do my listeners get a copy of this particular book that you have crafted? You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. There are other internet booksellers where you can get it. Um, so it's, it's out there. Uh, and um, I'm sure bookshops would get it for you if you ask them. They can also do a research under your name, John, J-O-H-N, Bancroft, B-A-N-C-R-O-F-T, and uh, find this book and anything else that you may write in the future. Uh, This has been an interesting uh, observation that you have made, Tolerance of Uncertainty, and those who uh, have a desire to research not only sexuality but also choices in life should get a copy of your book. It's well-researched. The book title, again, is Tolerance of Uncertainty. Author, John Bancroft. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you very much. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. This is Author Talk. My name is Brian Houston. We're glad you're here with us today, and we're going to be talking with a gentleman who has uh, gone through an unspeakable tragedy uh, in a number of ways and uh, decided to write a book about it. And as we talk today, you'll find out why he decided to uh, open up his soul, I guess, to uh, share what uh, his experience was and uh, what he hopes to accomplish with this book. The name of the book is Missing the Links, and uh, the subtitle is very blunt, A Mother's Murder of My 17-Month-Old Son Garrison. It is written by Gregory Burchett, and we are very glad to have him with us right now from his home in California. Gregory, thank you very much for being on with us today. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate this opportunity. The uh, title pretty much says it all, and uh, in the, if you, anybody wants to Google uh, your family name and the name of your son Garrison, they're going, going to find a, a pretty um, hor- horrendous story of the murder of your son by your um, ex-wife. I assume ex-wife. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, this took place back in 2009. So first of all, tell us what you can and what you're willing to share about uh, what exactly happened. Well, um, my wife uh, began experiencing um, a psychological spiral, and 
it resulted in her uh, killing our son, who was 17 months old at the, at the time. And when it happened, um, I uh, um, was absolutely, I felt like I was drowning. I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know how to react. Um, and I started writing a journal in on my computer just so that I wouldn't forget anything. I was I was concerned for the trial, and I was concerned for the future um, of my son, and I didn't, of my surviving son, uh, Gregory, and I didn't know uh, what to do. And it started out as just an, an aid to memory, but it, then it quickly turned into um, a way for me to put my frustrations and my anger at myself and at what had happened. Um, and when the trial was done and when the appeal was denied, um, the defense strategy uh, centered on um, uh, mental insanity. And the same defense team that was used, mental, um, psychological defense team that was used on the Andrea Yates case was also used on my ex-wife's case as well. And but in California, the standard for criminal insanity uh, was not met. And so Lori, um, Garrison's mother, was convicted of murder, and she's currently serving time in prison. And it was about a year and a half ago when I considered um, perhaps writing a book to share my story. And I think the thing that really convinced me to move forward with it was that there was very little written from a man's perspective or from the husband's perspective. And I just um, wanted to um, share my experiences of the things that I saw, of the things that I overlooked at the time, and the, um, the aftermath and how I tried to rebuild my life. Uh, in order to help others. Um, I think this is uh, mental illness. Um, I, I, it's hard to believe that there's no one who has not been touched by it in some way with a family member or a friend or themselves. And my sincere hope is that I can prevent tragedies like this from happening in the future. Now, I, I read in uh, some of the background information that you initially were having a difficult time coming up with uh, the, the title for the book because I think it was something along the lines of I married a psycho and I tried to make it work. Is that pretty close to what you... Yeah, it was, it was kind of a sarcastic <clears throat> statement that a, a dear friend of mine and I, when we were on the phone, um, he uh, jokingly um, had said after I had uh, counseled a couple of... Uh, get-togethers with him and his family. He said, man, you're afraid of commitment. And I said, what are you trying... <laughs> I, I, I laughed at the time, and I said, hey, I married a psycho killer, and I try to make wow. it work. You know, what do you mean I, I am afraid of commitment? And we, there was a moment of hesitation, and then we both laughed. And uh, um, But it was, it was the initial working title for the book, but then I... After some consultation with some people that I trust and stuff, um, I wanted it to be more um, serious and I wanted it to be more um, optimistic somewhere in there that I chose missing the links because of the things that I missed and seeing my wife's downward spiral at the time and the things that I could have done had I known uh, perhaps some of the things that she was going through, maybe I could have averted this tragedy had I stepped up and understood 
um, how serious it really was. How long, how long had you been married at the time that you noticed or maybe didn't notice some things were going on with your wife? Uh, we had been married about three years when her behavioral patterns um, started to change. And um, we had had another son together, um, Gregory, um, and there were no discernible differences. I mean, we were just living our lives trying to um, plan for the future. But when Garrison was born, um, her perspectives changed quite a bit on multiple things from professional goals to where we wanted to live to um, uh, her trying to find her happiness within herself, um, her spiritual happiness. And she started to express that she was becoming more and more lost in what she was looking for in life. And um, she had had some uh, anger issues and some controlling issues that seemed to be heightened during this time. It was, it was the last year um, or so prior to Garrison's passing that things really started getting... Um, um, uh, they became. They, they started getting to a point where I was lost and I did not know what to do. Did you in any way see that uh, something as horrific as what took place with your ex-wife and your son? Did you did you have any way of seeing that something like that could potentially happen? No, and I, I really want people to understand that up to this point, she had never shown any physical um, abusive tendencies or anything like that. Um, it became apparent when I was reading through things that she had put on our computer that I had not seen prior to the murder. It became apparent that she had started thinking some weird thoughts and she had been typing them down. But she never expressed those to me until right before uh, Garrison's passing, that last two weeks or three weeks, that our conversations became very um, very hard for me to understand where she was coming from. But in, in, at no time had I thought that she was capable of hurting any of her children. And then um, in doing some background uh, reading on this, uh, your son uh, saw his little brother after the fact, after he'd been murdered. Um, and uh, even if I'm reading it right, uh, it looked like a pretty normal morning. He played with him for a little while, um, and then the mother took your son off into a back room someplace, and and whatever happened happened. And, and your son finally, uh, I guess, broke the door open or whatever to see uh, his little brother laying there. Um, yeah. What kind of impact has that had on him? How is he doing? Well, um, this was my stepson, Nick, okay. and uh, he was um, uh, 15 or so at the time, and it had a. It's been very traumatic in his life. Um, you're absolutely right. They they started the morning. It was supposed to be a normal day. Um, he was he was supposed to uh, go to school that day. Um, but Lori decided to keep him home, and he woke up in the morning. He played with Garrison. They had a nice morning, but then um, when Lori came out, she was um, in a distraught state, 
and took Garrison to the back the master bedroom and instructed Nick to uh, sit on the couch. And um, he believes that he heard the moment when Garrison died. Mm. And it was shortly thereafter that she came out um, uh, in, in, a, in a mental state that w- is hard to describe. But she, <clears throat> as Nick would say, was crazy at that time. Sure. And that's when he went back and he actually discovered Garrison's body. And um, at this point, Nick was, uh, he did not know what to do. Um, He went back into the living room and sat there for the rest of the day into the evening um, in shock. He was afraid to call for help. He was afraid to call me. He didn't know what to do. He was concerned that his mother would come out and try to hurt him. Um, And I just can't imagine the... I can't imagine what was going through his mind during that day. And even that evening when I came home, prior to my discovering Garrison's body, uh, Nick was still in a state of shock at that time. And um, it's it's been difficult on him. Um, the normal trials of growing up as a teenage boy, and then you overlay on this what his mother did. And um, he lost his mother that day, in addition to losing his younger brother. Um, He's doing better now. He's in college. He's trying to rebuild his life, but it's been it it has been really hard on him. And um, and in my mind, he he was hurt the worst out of this tragedy. Other than Garrison, he was he was traumatized the worst. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, again, um, seeing and and uh, without getting into a lot of detail, or uh, leaving it up to you to determine how much detail you want to give, but. Uh, the baby brother had been, uh, I guess uh, they determined that he died of blunt force trauma to the head. Is that correct? Yes. And then there was a ritual. Uh, he, 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 he either passed from the blunt force trauma um, or shortly thereafter. But Lori also um, uh, performed um, a ritualistic, um, I, I don't know if ceremony is the right word, but mm-hmm. in a ritualistic fashion she also... Um, uh, opened up his abdomen. Wow. Um, and so uh, there was either he was dead at the time that she actually entered his body or he died shortly thereafter. I'm sure the book covers all of this, but uh, there are so many things here that I, I, I have to imagine were just, um, it must have taken years to get your head around A, uh, losing your son, B, losing your son in such a horrific fashion, uh, C, the realization that the woman that you've been married to had done this to your son, um, then on top of that having to look after your other son to make sure that he's okay, and and how how were you able to keep it all together? Were you able to keep it all together uh, under such an enormous burden uh, on so many different levels? <clears throat> well, people tell me that I did a wonderful job. Um, from the outside, um, I um, kept things together. I, I brought in people to help me as much as I could. I think that is one of the best advi- pieces of advice I can have for someone is to bring in people that you trust and let them help you make decisions. Um, I think I was I was um, on cruise control. I did not know what to do. 
um, my surviving, my other son, who's Gregory, who was two years older than Garrison, um, it was his well-being that was a primary driving force to keep me going every day. And up through the time of the trial, um, all I could it took everything I could do to wake up in the morning, to feed him, to get him to daycare, to to just try to just keep my life going, not even thinking about myself or thinking about rebuilding my life. Um, but as time passed, um, I uh, started relying more and more on other people for Gregory's best interest. Um, I got him psychological help, which is very difficult to do, is to find someone who can help a child deal with trauma. Um, I was able to get him help, and I, I got myself help as much as I could. Um, it's, it's like you get into a, um, you're just fighting for your life mode, and then it took a while for me to think about um, dealing with my pain other than just my normal daily activities. And not to mention that, but uh, I think what the trial took about two years? It was it was about two years when the trial started. Okay. The actual murder phase for the trial was done relatively quick. Um, there was not a lot of um, uh, controversy whether she was responsible for his death. Um, but it was the insanity phase that took a little bit longer, and that's the one that concentrated on her mental state at the time of the murder. So, uh, again, you know, uh, dealing with all that you're dealing with and then having to relive this in a, a very public fashion uh, in a courtroom, reporters, obviously the, the story gained uh, national attention. Um, how did you come out of this thing? Um, in some ways, I think I'm stronger. Um, in some ways, I think I'm more empathetic to what people go through. I think that my sharing this story has helped me help others. Um, I've had um, quite a few people um, express to me that reading my book helped them gain clarity in their lives. Um, I've been able to help other fathers whose wives were starting to show signs of mental illness and they were able to get their wives help prior to something bad happening. Uh, I've made presentations to uh, medical professionals and psychological professionals um, where I've tried to uh, support their efforts as much as I can. Um, I think if good can come out of tragedy, I think that my example is one that, that I've been able to reach out and help others and and that has helped me as well to help other people has helped me get over my grief and my tragedy um, I there's a um, production company who has expressed interest in my writing a screenplay and so we're we may be looking at a movie based on this book and um, so there may be um, some good things coming out of this overall but I think at the, at the root base of of what I'm trying to do is I'm really just trying to uh, there's such a public um, stigma about mental health and especially the thought of a mother um, hurting her child there's nothing more sacred uh, in society than a mother's love for her child and I think that 
if we recognize that a woman can go through a lot of things during pregnancy or after pregnancy and and it's okay to expect those changes <clears throat> they may not be to the extreme of a mother hurting her child but oftentimes women have um, thoughts of of, of um, disassociation and and they're supposed to love this child but they don't feel connected to it and and um, uh, there's there's a lot in the professional literature about about how much women really do go through, and I think it's so important that we all recognize that women can go through this, and and how can we help them? How can we prevent this tragedy from ever happening again? Unbelievable story. Um, tell me what was the most challenging thing about writing this book? Um. I think the hardest thing was to try to write it in a way that was not too graphic, that would um, give the reader an opportunity to live those moments with me and to share my experience, but in a way that I hope comes across as being optimistic overall, that anyone can go through tragedy and find the strength to move on, and anyone can deal with life and even though this is an extreme example of the pain that life can bring everybody experiences pain and loss and some form of betrayal and I think that that was the hardest thing for me to have in there is not not have it be about my anger not have it be about my um, just just nothing but pure frustration and and have a negative tone to the whole story. Um, I tried very hard to be um, sharing and as open and as blunt as I could be, but I tried to use language that was um, inviting and would make the reader want to read it and keep reading it and to go through that story and to share that with me. And um, I, that was difficult to do, but I, I do think that um, I was quite um, successful in in that overall uh, vision. How long did it take you to get to that um, that positive place? Uh, how long did it take you to get beyond the anger, and how do you deal with that in this book? Um, I think actually writing the book, I dealt with my anger um, because I had to watch my words. And that file that I mentioned before, the journal that I started, was over 400,000 words when I first opened it up and used it as the basis of the book. And I just was able to purge all of that anger that I had written down and typed. I would just cut it out. I cut it out. And it was kind of like I was purging that from my emotions as well. And um, it took about four months for me to write, eh, two or three months to write the book, and then had a couple revisions. But... Um, when I decided to do it, I, I jumped on it, and I was able to do it in a, in a fairly fairly quick fashion. But I do think that writing the book helped me to to um, get rid of my anger that I was experiencing at the time. I was I was very very mad at myself, and I was very mad at what she had done, and um, and I still deal with that to a certain extent. Um, the pain has never gone away. Um, but I think my um, my anger definitely has subsided. 
Well, it's a, it's an unbelievable story. Um, is there anything that I've left out uh, that you'd like to uh, cover before we kind of wind this thing down? Um, I think I think to reiterate that that it's normal to expect people to have psychological issues throughout their life. It's not normal to expect that somebody would hurt somebody else. And I think the power in this conversation is when a woman is pregnant and she's talking with her OB or talking with the nurses and talking with her family or friends to actually say, you know, that I'm not feeling quite right today and then have that support group around them. I think one of the biggest things I'm trying to do is get the medical um, establishment more willing to ask tougher questions like, how are you sleeping? Have you had any thoughts of hurting your child? Those type of things with nurses and with physicians. And the more that we can open up this conversation and make women feel more comfortable in talking about um, in talking about their actual feelings and emotions during and after pregnancy, I think that we could we could really go a long ways um, to help people to avoid to avoid something like this happening ever again. I never want somebody to lose a child due to um, mental health issues, and I think that the more people that understand and the more people that know, then the more that we can help. And that's really the, the that's really the message that I want to get out there. Where can people find this book? It's uh, located on Author House uh, on their website. It's also um, on Barnes and Noble and on Amazon. Uh, many local bookstores have them in different places, um, but it's widely available. Gregory Burchett, that the uh, name of the book is Missing the Links, uh, Mother's Murder of My 17-Month-Old Son Garrison. It's published by Author House. Um, Greg, I, I, I just can't even uh, begin to uh, uh, verbalize uh, how uh, brave you are for uh, doing this uh, and uh, how much um, I admire the fact that uh, you've come through something like this in such a positive manner and are willing to share that story uh, with, you know, trying to turn something uh, tragic into something good. Uh, and you are to uh, be commended for it, no question. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I did fail to mention I do have a website of the same name for the book, so if people would like to go there and, and maybe make a comment on Facebook or something like that, I I really would love feedback from people um, to share their experiences or their impressions of what they have read, and I would appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, so the, the website is literally named Missing the Links? Yeah, missingthelinks.com, yes. Very good. Okay, I want to make sure everybody can find the website. And again, be sure and pick up the book, Missing the Links, A Mother's Murder of My 17-Month-Old Son Garrison. It's published by Author House. The author is Gregory Burchett. Gregory, thank you very much again for sharing your story. We appreciate it. Uh, We wish you the best. And uh, again, you are in our thoughts and prayers as you and your family continue to uh, try to uh, heal and recover from uh, an awful tragedy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You too. This is Brian Houston. Thank you very much for listening to Author Talk.